Section 18 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Ethics of Human Subjects Research, A Historical Perspective, Chapter 2, Part 3. Nuremberg and Research with Patients The record of conducting non-therapeutic research with unconsenting sick patients during the post-war period discussed above seems to stand in particularly sharp contrast with the claims about the conduct of research involving human subjects in the United States that Andrew Ivey made during his testimony in Nuremberg. We have seen how some observers, even before Nuremberg, recognized that employing uninformed, vulnerable sick patients solely as a means to a scientific end was simply wrong. We must, however, also acknowledge that the particulars of the Nuremberg medical trial did not call for careful attention to the issues surrounding research with sick patients. None of the German physicians at Nuremberg stood accused of exploiting patients for experimental purposes. Nonetheless, it is likely that Andrew Ivey would have argued that consent was appropriate in virtually all instances of medical research. Dr. Herman Wagotsky, who worked closely under Ivy at Northwestern in the late 1930s and early 1940s, explicitly commented during an Ethics Oral History Project interview that he did not believe that his mentor drew any sort of ethical line between various types of clinical research. I don't think he made any distinction between research with sick patients and research with healthy subjects. Research was research. It didn't make any difference. Additional evidence that Ivy would have supported standards of consent for research with ill as well as with healthy subjects comes from his response to a set of rules for human experimentation put forth by the German Ministry of Interior in 1931, presented to him after he had prepared his written report for the AMA in the fall of 1946. These rules appear to be considerably more comprehensive and sophisticated than the Nuremberg Code itself. Most significantly, the 1931 German standards cover both therapeutic and non-therapeutic research, calling for consent in both types of medical investigation. For reasons that are not clear, the prosecution team at Nuremberg did not choose to place much emphasis on these German standards in constructing the case. Ivy did, however, attempt, without much help from the prosecution, to initiate a discussion of the 1931 standards during his testimony. It is clear from the trial transcript that Ivy saw a rough equivalence between the more detailed and extensive German rules and those formulated by the AMA, with his assistance. Shortly after discussing the AMA principles on the witness stand, Ivy had the following exchange with Prosecutor Alexander G. Hardy. Question. Do you have any further statements to make concerning the rules of medical ethics 
concerning experimentation in human beings. Answer. Well, I find that since making my report to the American Medical Association that a decree of the Minister of Public Welfare, Ivy should have said the Minister of the Interior, of Germany in 1931 on the subject of regulations for modern therapy for the performance of scientific experiments on human beings, contains all the AMA principles which I have read. Hardy did not take what now seems an obvious opportunity to allow Ivy to expand further on these rules. However, a few minutes later, Ivy brought up the German standards again on his own, and again Hardy did not pursue the topic further. At this point, Ivy stated his general agreement with the German standards of 1931 even more firmly. I cited the principles from the Reich Minister of the Interior, dated February 28, 1931, to indicate that the ethical principles for the use of human beings as subjects in medical experiments in Germany in 1931 were similar to these which I have enunciated and which have been approved by the House of Delegates of the American Medical Association. Ivy's assertion of similarity between the AMA principles and those in the 1931 German document may not meet with agreement among those who compare the two. Though they may be viewed as similar in philosophy and intent, the German Interior Ministry document is far more detailed and comprehensive than that of the AMA. Contrary to Ivy's claims at Nuremberg and the positioning of Ivy by the prosecution, he cannot in any full sense be taken as the embodiment of the entire American medical profession in the years immediately following World War II. Again, Dr. Wagotsky spoke to this point in his recent interview. Well, I've always felt that that stuff that Ivy wrote up during the time of the trials was pretty much an expression of his personal philosophy about research. And it was the kind of understanding that we had in working with him about how he felt. Voluntariness being, number one, you had to volunteer and had to be in a situation where you could volunteer. And consent in the sense that you didn't do anything to anybody that they didn't know what you were doing. That you explained to people what it was you were going to do and why you were going to do it and that sort of thing. Even if it is true that Andrew Ivey would have wholeheartedly endorsed the notion of obtaining consent from any research subject, whether an experiment held the possibility of personal benefit or not, whether the subjects were sick or healthy, it seems likely that the AMA House of Delegates would have been hesitant to endorse a condensation of Ivey's principles of research ethics if they had been explicitly extended to cover all categories of clinical investigation. Obtaining consent from patients within the normal clinical relationship was not a common practice in late 1946. At that time, and for many years to come, patient trust and medical beneficence were viewed as the unshakable moral foundations on which meaningful interactions between professional healers and the sick should be built. In fact, it was not until 1981 that the AMA's Judicial Council specifically endorsed informed consent as an appropriate part of the 
therapeutic doctor-patient relationship. But in the end, it must be acknowledged that the facts of the Nuremberg Medical Trial did not force Andrew Ivey, the AMA House of Delegates, the Nuremberg prosecutors, or the judges to grapple with the distinctions between research with sick patients and research with healthy subjects, or therapeutic and non-therapeutic research. The Nuremberg defendants stood accused of ghastly experimental acts that were absolutely without therapeutic intent, and their unfortunate subjects were never under any illusion that they were receiving medical treatment. To rebut the claims of some of the medical defendants that obtaining consent from research subjects was not a clearly established principle, Ivy could, and did, offer a variety of examples on the witness stand from a long tradition of human experimentation on consenting healthy subjects. Ivy and the members of the prosecution team were not faced with what might have been a more troubling process. Finding examples of well-organized non-therapeutic experiments on sick patients in which the subjects had clearly offered consent. Simply put, the Nuremberg Medical Trial did not demand it. American Medical Researchers' Reactions to News of the Nuremberg Medical Trial It is important to have some understanding of the extent to which American medical scientists paid attention to the events of the Nuremberg Medical Trial and made connections with the messages that emanated from the courtroom in Germany. The Nuremberg Medical Trial received coverage in the American popular press, but it would almost certainly be an exaggeration to refer to this attention as exhaustive. Historian David Rothman has provided the following summary of the trial's coverage in the New York Times. Over 1945 and 1946, fewer than a dozen articles appeared in the New York Times on the Nazi medical research. The indictment of 42 doctors in the fall of 1946 was a page 5 story and the opening of the trial a page 9 story. The announcement of the guilty verdict in August 1947 was a front-page story but the execution of seven of the defendants a year later was again relegated to the back pages. The Advisory Committee's Ethics Oral History Project suggests that American medical researchers, perhaps like the American public generally, were not carefully following the daily developments in Nuremberg. For example, Dr. John Arnold, a researcher who, during the medical trial, was involved in malaria experiments on prisoners at Stateville Prison in Illinois, offered a particularly vivid, if somewhat anachronistic, recollection of the scant attention paid to the Nuremberg medical trial among American medical scientists. We were dimly aware of it, and as you ask me now, I'm astonished that we were not hanging on the TV at the time, watching for each twist and turn of the argument to develop but we weren't. It might have been expected that the researchers at Stateville would have been particularly concerned with the events at Nuremberg because some of the medical defendants claimed during the trial that the wartime malaria experiments at the Illinois prison were analogous to the experiments carried out in the Nazi concentration camps. 
the strongest statement of awareness came from dr herbert abrams a radiologist who was in his residency at montefiore hospital in the bronx throughout most of the trial the nuremberg medical trial was part of the history of the day and there was extensive reportage so that the manner of human experimentation as it had been done by the nazis was very much in the news we were all aware of it i think that people experienced this kind of revulsion about it that you might anticipate it was surely something at least in the environment i was in we were aware of and that affected the thinking of everyone who was involved in clinical investigation it seems likely however that the environment this young physician was in would have caused a heightened awareness of a trial dealing with nazi medical professionals montefiore is a traditionally jewish hospital that was home to many jewish refugee physicians who had fled the terror and oppression of the nazi regime a trial of german physicians almost certainly would have been of particular interest in this setting even among american medical researchers who might have been aware of events at nuremberg it seems that many did not perceive specific personal implications in the medical trial rothman has enunciated this historical view most fully he asserts that the prevailing view was that the nuremberg medical defendants were nazis first and last by definition nothing they did and no code drawn up in response to them was relevant to the united states j katz has offered a similar summation of the immediate response of the medical community to the nuremberg code it was a good code for barbarians but an unnecessary code for ordinary physicians several participants in the ethics oral history project affirmed the interpretations of rothman and katz using similar language said one physician there was a disconnect between the nuremberg code and its application to american researchers the interpretation of these codes by american physicians was that they were necessary for barbarians but not for fine upstanding people this same physician later acknowledged that in a sense some american researchers did not pay attention to the lessons of the nuremberg medical trial because it was not convenient to do so the connection between those horrendous acts carried out by german medical scientists in the concentration camps and our everyday investigations was not made by american medical researchers for reasons of self-interest to be perfectly frank as i see it now i'm saddened that we didn't see the connection but that's what was done it's hard to tell you now how we rationalized but the fact is we did the popular press mirrored the view that human experimentation as practiced in the united states was not a morally troubling enterprise it was as american as apple pie between 1948 and 1960 magazines such as the saturday evening post readers digest and the american mercury ran human interest stories on human guinea pigs these stories generally focused on specific groups of healthy subjects prisoners conscientious objectors 
medical students, soldiers, and described them as volunteers. The articles explained the ordeals to which the volunteers had submitted themselves. Among these men and women, the New York Times informed its Sunday readership in 1958, you will find those who will take shots of the new vaccines, who will swallow radioactive drugs, who will fly higher than anyone else, who will watch malaria-infected mosquitoes feed on their bare arms. The articles assured the public that the volunteers had plausible, often noble, reasons for volunteering for such seemingly gruesome treatment. The explanations included social redemption, especially in the case of prisoners, religious or other beliefs, particularly for conscientious objectors, the advancement of science, service to society, and thrill-seeking, in some, most articles in the popular press were uncritical toward experimentation on humans and assumed that those involved had freely volunteered to participate. However, a smaller number of press reports in the late 1940s and 1950s did suggest some tension between the words at Nuremberg and the practices in America. As early as 1948, for example, Science News reported the Soviet claim that Americans were using Nazi methods in the conduct of prison experiments. Concern also began to be voiced about the dangers to volunteer guinea pigs. In October 1954, for another example, the magazine Christian Century called on the Army to halt, at the first sign of danger, experiments at the Fitzsimmons Hospital in Denver where soldiers were called upon to eat foods exposed to cobalt radiation. It is also possible that press accounts of experiments with patients rather than healthy subjects were more inclined to be critical, even in the late 1940s. A Saturday Evening Post article from the January 15, 1949 issue describes how a VA physician kept quiet about streptomycin trials involving the medical departments of the Army, Navy, and VA because of the risk of congressional chastisement from publicity-conscious members of the House and Senate who might have screamed, you can't experiment on our heroes, if it had been known that Army and Navy veterans of former wars were being used in the medical investigation. This was a real worry of the doctors who formulated the clinical program. Evidence suggests that some American researchers were genuinely and deeply concerned with the issues surrounding human experimentation during the years immediately following World War II. One source of insight into the thinking of American physicians engaged in clinical research during the 1950s is found in the groundbreaking work of medical sociologist Rene C. Fox. For two five-month periods between September 1951 and January 1953, Fox spent long days in continuous, direct, and intimate contact with the physicians and patients in a metabolic research ward that she pseudonymously called Ward F. Second. In 1959, Fox reported with remarkable sensitivity and eloquence on the ethical dilemmas faced by the physicians conducting research on this ward. 
She did not suggest that the scientists under her observation were unaware of the Nuremberg Code. Instead, she offered a point-by-point paraphrasing of the code, which she identified as the basic principles governing research on human subjects, which the physicians of the metabolic group, her collective term for the researchers whom she studied, were required to observe. Rather than being unconscious or contemptuous of a set of principles intended for barbarians, Vox reported that the researchers on Ward F. Second were sometimes troubled by their inability to apply the high, but essentially unquestioned, standards enunciated at the Nuremberg Medical Trial. The physicians of the metabolic group were deeply committed to these principles and conscientiously tried to live up to them in the research they carried out on patients. However, like most norms, the basic principles of human experimentation are formulated on such an abstract level that they only provide general guides to actual behavior. Partly as a consequence, the physicians of the metabolic group often found it difficult to judge whether or not a particular experiment in which they were engaged kept within the bounds delineated by these principles. Sometimes, private discussions among researchers about the ethical aspects of human experimentation led to public events. A good example from the early 1950s is the symposium held on October 10, 1951, at the University of California School of Medicine in San Francisco, at which Otto Gutentag made the presentation discussed earlier. One of Gutentag's colleagues, Dr. Michael B. Shimkin, organized the symposium in response to some confidential criticism that he had received for research carried out under his direction with patients at the University of California's Laboratory of Experimental Oncology. The exact nature of this criticism is unclear from the records that remain of the episode, but Shimkin reported in a memoir that remedial steps were taken including written protocols for all new departures in clinical research, which we asked the cancer board of the medical school to review. In his memoirs, Shimkin also recalls that patients were screened carefully before they were admitted to the Laboratory of Experimental Oncology. They had to understand the experimental nature of our work, and every procedure was again explained to them, the initial release form even included agreement to an autopsy. The understanding did not absolve us of negligence nor deprive patients of recourse to legal actions, but did set the tone and nature of our relationships. In all our five years of operations, not a single threat or implied threat of action against us was voiced. Two patients did instruct us to terminate our attempts at therapy. The criticism Shimkin experienced also demonstrated to him that a more open discussion of clinical research might be of benefit to his colleagues. According to his recollection, there was an almost visible thawing of attitude by the airing of the problem at the symposium. Less than a year after Shimkin's 1951 San Francisco Symposium, the organizers of the First International Congress of the histopathology of the nervous system, which was held in Rome, were sufficiently concerned with ethical issues 
that they invited Pope Pius XII to address the moral limits of medical methods of research and treatment. In a speech before 427 medical researchers from around the world, including 62 Americans, the Pope firmly endorsed the principle of obtaining consent from research subjects, whether sick or healthy. He also pointed his audience to the relatively recent lessons of the Nuremberg Medical Trial, which he summed up as teaching that man should not exist for the use of society. On the contrary, the community exists for the good of man. In an interview in 1961, Dr. Thomas Rivers, a prominent American virus researcher, recalled that the Pope's words had been influential among medical scientists working during the 1950s. In September 1952, Pope Pius XII had given a speech at the First International Congress on the histopathology of the nervous system in which he outlined the Roman Catholic Church's position on the moral limits of human experimentation for purposes of medical research. That speech had a very broad impact on medical scientists both here and abroad. The growing influence of the Nuremberg Medical Trial can be seen by looking at two editions of the best-known textbook of American medical jurisprudence in the mid-20th century. In the 1949 edition of Doctor and Patient and the Law, Louis J. Regan, a physician and lawyer, offered very little under the heading experimentation, and what he did offer made no reference to Nuremberg. The physician must keep abreast of medical progress, but he is responsible if he goes beyond usual and standard procedures to the point of experimentation. If such treatment is considered indicated, it should not be undertaken until consultation has been had and until the patient has signed a paper acknowledging and assuming the risk. However, in Regan's next edition of the same text, published in 1956, his few lines on human experimentation had been expanded to three pages. He presented a lengthy paraphrasing of the Nuremberg Code and he repeated verbatim, without quotation marks, the judge's preamble to the code, stating that all agree about these principles. Regan characterized the standards enunciated by the judges at Nuremberg as the most carefully developed set of precepts specifically drawn to meet the problem of human experimentation. Immediately following his discussion of Nuremberg, Regan laid out the 1946 standards of the American Medical Association, which, as he put it, researchers needed to meet in order to conform with the ethics of the American Medical Association. End of Section 18 Recording by Melanie Young